Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Here we will delicately and tactfully walk through each psychological issue. Psych! This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. This is not intended as individual, psychological, or medical advice. Please proceed at your own risk and always defer to your individual medical or mental health care team. Basically, don't make it weird, guys. Right. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shit Your Shrink Thanks. Working nine to five. What a way to make a living, barely getting by. It's all taken and no giving, they just use your mind. And they never give you credit, it's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. <laughs> Dolly! Dolly Parton. Dolly, the queen Parton. She is the queen. Yeah, she's a beautiful little angel. I would love to check out Dolly World someday. That would be cool. Where is Dolly World? I feel like it is in... Is that in Branson, Missouri? No. Okay. I don't think so. I think it's in Tennessee. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could see that, actually. I know there was like a weird bit of... Because at one point I lived in Missouri. I know there yeah. was something dollar, Dolly part. I mean, related. I think Dolly's got a few things scattered throughout. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she is the queen. <laughs> Dolly World would be freaking cool. Yeah. Well, that actually, that song relates very strongly to the topic at hand today, which is we're going to be talking about the conditions that mental health workers face when we are actually working. Yeah. So it's a bit of a pet issue for both of us, <laughs> as, you, as you might imagine. <laughs> but as usual, I wanted to remind all of the folks who are listening, this is Shit Your Shrink Thinks. It is a podcast where two shrinks tell you things we think about mental health. We give you real world coping skills. We'll yep. give you facts. And we'll also tell you a little bit about our lives to kind of normalize the struggle a bit. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. We do have a Patreon, and that is www.patreon.com forward slash shit your shrink things. If you're enjoying our episodes, hey, it's cheaper than therapy. Yeah, give us a donation. <laughs> so consider that. Or simply like, follow us, rate, and review us because yeah. that actually gives that us... That helps us more than you know. Oh, yeah. It gives us traction. Visibility to other people who yep. might need to find us for their, I don't know, dark purposes. <laughs> whatever, whatever they need us for, man. Uh, we also have a Facebook, a Twitter, and you can email us at shityourshrinkthinks at gmail.com if you need to. Yeah. We love to hear from you. It always uplifts our spirits. Yeah. And people are writing in a lot lately. So thank you for that. We are Yay. really, really, really enjoying it. Yeah. It keeps us motivated because this this is a grind itself yeah. sometimes. So. Yeah, yeah, it is. We want to kind of be professional on target. It does require a lot of work to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, professionally We've, unprofessional. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to describe this for sure. Oh, So as you guys might remember, we are still learning about each other on this podcast. And sometimes we like to share a story or just a general what's good. So Sunny, what is your what's good for today? Today, I would like to share with you that this week I was, I, I participated in a game show. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Like legit? Yeah, kind of. So okay. I was at a taping of The Price is Right. Nuh-uh. Yeah. Like the legit Price is Right? Yeah, The, the Price <gasps> is Right. I was- they Okay. I was in the audience for, I wasn't, I didn't get called or do anything okay. in The Price is Right, but I was in the audience. Did for they the record right. in this area? They did. They they did a recording in this area and it was no a, way. it was a touring also show. Okay. So 
Uh, yeah, there was, I, I went, I got a little name tag, like it has the Price is Right <sighs> name tag, I have it. You got to keep it? Yep, I got to keep yeah. it. So it says my name on it. And we went to the audience and it was cool because they did a thing where they would obviously call up the four people to come be contestants. Sure, sure. But then also people would win things in between in the audience. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, so when somebody won on the game show, they would give the audience member something they'd call random names. So it was really cool. That is so cool. And I found myself being incredibly motivated for the success of others. I don't think I have ever seen that. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually this unifying experience. The Price is Right is, should be the model for world peace. <laughs> Because, well, because if they win, then you guys win. Exactly. It was just everybody wanted everybody to be successful and win. So we were really, really working hard for each other out there. And That's awesome. I appreciated that kind of kinetic energy that everybody was building to give everybody love. Yeah. And now it's been a while since I've watched that show. Did I can't remember how much the audience like, can, are they allowed to kind of shout out like prices? They do, right? Yes. They're like trying to tell them what price to pick. Yes, exactly. Okay. That's and what I, I was visualizing, but I'm like, God, it's been a hot minute. Well, and I think the audience actually did a pretty good job. And you know me, I'm a nerd. So probably about mm, an hour before I went there, I did a little study. Of course, you did some research. <laughs> and you're like, I'm going to figure out all of these prices, bitch. <laughs> I did. So I did. I used game theory to Ooh. deal with prices right and i was testing out this internet so i read an article on the internet about how to guess the prices on things okay like they had a kind of a system uh, based on game theory and it was correct i have no idea how i retained the person who i went with can vouch for me if she's listening how much i retained of this prices right article but it was like i've never memorized anything <laughs> that quickly in my entire life i i like recited. i'm not surprised dude it, you have it's wild you got some magical abilities when it comes to like freaking stats and shit i was like somehow i don't even know what's happening but for example there was a the yodeler game where you are, where the person is climbing, you have yeah, to yeah, guess yeah. the price yep, of an yep. object. And they are climbing up the, the mountain. Yep. Yeah. And you have to be less than $25 off the total of three objects that you're guessing the price of. Right. So the game theory thing was guess $19 as the first price and then add 11 to every one of the prices that it actually ended up being. And then you will never statistically fall off the mountain. And it freaking worked. What? Yeah, it okay. freaking worked. People going to Price is Right. Yeah. Write that down. Yes, it was wild. Anyway, so that was my what's good this week is I went to the Price is Right. I, did, I was not a contestant, but I was really... But you were participating. Yeah, I was participating. I really enjoyed myself. And I was very tense. The energy was very tense. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I really wanted people like, to I'm win. Sure, yeah, I'm sure like it was hopping. Like it was almost like a concert type energy oh, yeah. i'm sure like ah. there was one sweepstakes that was you won a scooter like a motorized scooter a cool. moped then you won a trip to new orleans nice then you won a trip to paris <gasps> and then you won a car whoa and i i was that one i could not believe it i was like if this was tailor-made for me and my husband oh my gosh <laughs> uh, but i wasn't up there too bad that's a bummer that is a bummer because you probably would have won I, well, I, I believe in you. Oh, that's so sweet. I don't know that I would have. I think I overbid on that one because I was playing along, obviously, in the audience. But sure. I did pretty good up until that point. But I don't think I would have won the sweepstake one or whatever the, the final bid one is. But I wonder sometimes, too, I mean, with all the stupid inflation right now, I wonder how accurate that's, these are. You yes. know what I mean? Like, I feel like because I think about different articles that I've read that say like, oh, this much is what people are spending on this. It's like, that's not at all accurate. That yes. is not what the rent going rate is. And yes. that is not what the current 
cable bills are. Yes. Like, so I wonder how accurate that really is, in my opinion. I um, had that exact thought because afterwards I was like, there's no way that this cost this much. Yeah. They yeah, were saying th- this, this is less. I guess thirty one thousand for the sweepstakes, and they put it at twenty three thousand for all uh, of that. No, that bullshit. I just told you. That's bullshit. what I said. Bullshit. I said if anything, I underbid. So yeah, it was that's exactly what I thought. Because my friend I went with was like, "Oh yeah, I think you're really underbidding," and I was like, "Yeah, I do too." But that's the point, right? You don't want to overbid. But right. Yeah. Then they said it was twenty three thousand. I was like, "Well, that's horseshit." Yeah, that's a hundred percent horseshit. I don't believe any of that yeah. nonsense. Yeah. It's like no, only only cost that much if you're already a millionaire and people are paying your way to go there. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. That's what I th- I know. That's what I thought. Thank you oh. for rolling your eyes at that because I feel the same. <laughs> <laughs> what's your what's good this week? My what's good is just an interesting little factoid, I suppose, that I came across. Mm-hmm. So I came across a little post that talks about a contronym. Okay. I don't know what that is. I didn't either. Okay. But so a contronym is a single word that has two contradictory meanings. So okay. they're own opposites. Oh. So it's the same word, but they both mean exactly opposite things. Oh, interesting. So, for example, bolt. It can mean to secure or to flee. Oh, I love that. Bound. It could be heading to a destination or restrained from movement. Dust could be an fine particles that are being added or removing them. Wow, that's cool. Right? I never knew about that. Contradict. I didn't either. That's But cool. I was like, that's kind of a fun little... Yeah. Hey, fun facts, people. Yeah. <laughs> I liked that one. I liked that one. You know that anytime you introduce a new bit of knowledge to me that my brain is just going to eat that up. Those are num-nums for me. I love them. I, I, English is such a weird language. I mean, Amen. I really feel for people who come to our country and try to learn this language because we have it's awful so it is it's so awful to learn and there's so many again contradictory statements and different words that then now with cultural like changes mean certain things that don't otherwise mean i mean good lord yeah no it's a mean language it is (laughs) it's It's punishing it's punishing (laughs) so what did you try for outside of session podcast experiment this week i was supposed to do something fun did you the closest I got was dancing while putting away dishes. Hey, you know what? I this is this is real life right now. Yeah. It it's hard, man. Like so I am breastfeeding, I'm pumping, which keeps me attached to a wall, and this newborn life in general is just like super fucking consuming, seriously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And with the freaking pumping stuff, I tell you what, like I had the wrong size flange, which is like the little nipple sucker thing, mm-hmm. and I got cracked nipples. And now because of busy life and difficulty to stay consistent, now I got some mastitis going on. Like, this shit is intense. Yeah, it's – we're going to be doing an episode pretty soon at some point about really mental health issues, perinatal, right, during pregnancy and postpartum. Right. Because it is – I don't know how you don't catch something. (laughs) Right, yeah. You're going to have some kind of mental health struggle during the whole process. Like, somewhere in there – Yeah shit's gonna fall apart yeah I mean, it's just like <laughs> to it, some degree it's not all bad that's for sure but no. it's just like it's be- like there's so many wonderful things for sure but yeah those wonderful things tend to be glossed upon like 
yeah society like focus yeah yeah they don't acknowledge the struggle aspects quite so much yeah and i just don't even feel like there's detail about how to get out of the struggle or like what works i just feel like it's all this like fluff information and then people give me bullshit information about like well we can't research pregnant women because of moral and ethical guidelines freaking i'm a researcher do not talk to me about moral (laughs) and ethical like y'all don't even know what we have done in research okay first of all like let's really talk about that but that's just a the i'm gonna get hot right i know as a side thing something that i also came across which i thought was beautiful is you know people tell you to grow a pair men have never ever fucking grown a pair it's all women that have grown a pair (laughs) only women can grow a pair men can't grow a pair i grew all the pairs they came with their pair Their pair was already attached. You were gifted your pair, sir. Yeah. We grew it. And let's be honest, vaginas are way more durable than balls. Just saying. I love it. But I'm sorry yeah. that you were not able to get in something I more fun. More fun. I sure. think that was something. It was. Yeah. I made an effort. Yes. How did your homework go? If I am being truly honest with you, I, I want you to be honest. Don't even remember what I told you I would do. <laughs> but I don't even remember. I'm so lost in time and space, but I can tell you what I actually did. I like that. I cannot, Go for it. I cannot tell you what I said I would do, but I I what I did do is I am still trying to debug from toxic hustle culture. Okay. I'm still trying to undo the burnout that yeah. has been placed upon me by unsafe mental health working conditions which we are going to be talking about today which is actually what triggered me to come up with this topic because it is taking way longer than i thought it would to debug from the culture that i was in Mm -hmm. and i would say the success is growing of me debugging but the problem is as i had mentioned last time people now think i'm free to chat all day long uh, and I don't know if you ever watched How I Met Your Mother, but there is a scene at some point in it where when Marshall and Lily have a kid, mm-hmm. Ted keeps calling them over and over again. And Marshall's like, seven or higher, Ted. Like, it needs to be the thing that you're calling me about. It needs, it needs to be a to seven, be a seven, seven or higher. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I'm getting like a lot of, I'm still getting the contacts that are like kind of like, I'm going to complain about this like really weird thing. And I actually don't mind. It's just that I don't have my own shit together enough. Yeah. And so I feel like I'm yelling like 10 or higher. <laughs> because <laughs> i'm not organized so while i'm debugging i'm like putting other things in its place which is bad and i am working on that but i am not i'm not successful right now that would be my report on my homework yeah well again i mean not only are you debugging but you're adjusting to a whole new life's change and and kids change so quickly yes. with what they need and what's going on and i mean good lord I, yeah yeah, no. I feel like I get tactical reports about babies, you know, from like on the ground research <laughs> that is only accurate for about like a week. Right. So I do all this research on the enemy and I'm like, yeah, I got all this intel. I'm going to be able to do all this stuff now. And then it's accurate. And they change for the game. Five total seconds. Yeah. And then they catch on that you know what's going on and they're like, oh, ha 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 ha. Right. Screw you. And then like they- a basketball, all of a sudden they're like, oh shit, our- <laughs> they know our rotation. We got to change up the Yeah. And they change the, play. the plan. And so yeah. then I get smacked in the face again yeah which i don't mind it's just a lot of it's a lot it's of mental a learning effort. Yeah, yeah it's a learning curve and yeah. when you're trying to debug and take time for yourself yet you're also trying to fully full-time care for another 
infant creature yes yeah it's it's, it's a lot fair um, so, and you're also you know doing your own business yeah. like getting that off the ground yes. and this yes it's a lot of shit to juggle yes and i'm having a big party this weekend so that's it's just a lot's going on so i'm working on it but on that note i actually picked the topic today kind of based on the previous homework mm-hmm. so this week we're going to be talking about something that's incredibly near and dear to my heart i'm going to try to keep it from being a rant episode i want to <laughs> I want to be as balanced as I can about this. It is something I'm very passionate about, though. So if you notice I'm ranting a little bit, it's because I care deeply about this subject. I recently made a jump from working in hospital systems to working in the private sector as a Mm -hmm. mental health professional. And while I'm really liking the private sector, it is leading me to reflect on some of the conditions I've worked in previous to now. Yeah. And I do not want this episode to be an Olympics of suffering. Like, my thing is so bad. Let's compare bad things. It's more just I want – I don't think people are super aware of what the conditions are for mental health providers. Yeah. There's not a lot of information about it out there. And so I thought it would be interesting to talk about. So – And I think, too, I think a lot of people – look at a therapist and they're like well you just like listen and talk to people all day like that doesn't sound too bad yeah you know yeah it's a hard job to perceive and understand like the draining and the efforts involved Mm -hmm. and again depending on what population you're working with that can completely change yes how that's affecting you and what your workload should look like versus what it actually does look like and yeah yes i think more so this is like a, a validation of the struggle is real. Yes. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that's exactly why I put it together because I figured we could both validate people who were providers themselves yeah. and what they're experiencing. But I also think this is really validating for people seeking care yeah. because they see the downsides on the other side of it and it can give information about what's going on so sure. that you, you can be an informed consumer. Also, even though this is a negative picture, we will offer some ideas about how to fix it. Not a lot, but just some general thoughts. So first, McKilla and I are just going to give you a quick rundown of like the types of places we've worked in so that you'll understand what we are giving you information about. So myself, I have worked in community psychological services. That means that you are seeing clients from the community who are adults, young adults, really the gamut, older adults, everybody, for individual and group therapy on a sliding scale fee, which is usually lower income. I also saw the students who were part of a university system. So it was Mm. also, it doubled as a student counseling center. Uh, There were usually fairly severe clients, Medicare, Medicaid, lower Mm -hmm. income, as I said. And I also did assessments for learning disorders. That was one. I have worked in public hospitals doing neuropsych assessments. So like for brain injuries, as well as therapy and group therapy. Mm -hmm. Which so that would be like your Mercy Hospital system or like I'm trying to think of it like a Mayo Clinic or things like that. That would be something. I've worked in rehab facilities. So that would be where you would find people like physical therapists or other types of maybe a nutritionist, things like Mm -hmm. that. It's kind of those facilities. I've worked in VA hospitals, so Veterans Affairs hospitals, and I'm also working in private practice. So that's kind of the – I have a gamut. To span, to give you information about those different experiences. How about you? I started working first in a child like daycare slash education kind of center. And Mm -hmm. it was, again, a sliding fee scale. So lower income. And a lot of times these kids were kicked out of school for their behaviors Mm -hmm. or they couldn't get into daycares because of their behaviors. And so with that, I would would do individual therapy with those kiddos and then like uh, 
family therapy with the parents and the kids mm-hmm. and even some parental therapy. Uh, this facility, though, to me was there was just a lot of weird ethical things going on there mm-hmm. uh, personally. Mm-hmm. Then I worked in the prison setting for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a lot of individual therapy and group therapy and just random tasks that you would have to complete and do because shit pops off and like you... getting pepper sprayed yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know go back to our previous episodes uh, yeah and I mean with that too I think for that position I was still kind of a greenhorn and coming into a prison setting I was hired to work mostly with the violent offenders which meant that I had to do the violent offender groups mm-hmm. which then meant for conflict of interest reasons that I had to work with the sex offenders one on one so I got all the violent guys in groups I got all the sex offenders individually just what you want just what I wanted I was yeah I was, it made me a little anxious and you know what yeah weird right well, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I worked in a uh, homeless setting doing case management type work where mm-hmm. I mean we did therapy as well with these people because mm-hmm. there was a lot of shit going off. And I mean, these are very high risk, high crisis situations and people with ridiculous caseloads that are completely unmanageable and unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that. Right. And then I worked in a primary care mental health setting, which you're supposed to be kind of working with the, the doctors and uh, providing like short term brief therapy mm-hmm. to people who are kind of having physical adjustments and sometimes that just ended up being like somebody's crying in my office so I don't want to talk to them here you go mm-hmm. <laughs> happens so much and then uh then I started working in a hospital setting doing therapy mm-hmm. um which again with this setting it's kind of a higher needs type people yes so I mean almost all of the individuals I've worked with have probably been fairly low income, fairly high needs crisis situations. Yep. We have a lot of similarities. <laughs> a lot of similarities that way. So we're going to break down the conditions of our employment and just kind of what it was really like, because we want to communicate that this is actually really, really challenging and conditions absolutely need to change. This is not sustainable the way that mental health workers are treated right now. It's just absolutely not acceptable. Right. And let's start with what usually is the best part of our work, but there is some downsides that we do need to talk about that sometimes people feel is unsavory, but we want to talk about it anyway as mental health providers because it's important to understand what our real life working conditions are like. So let's talk about our clients first. Now, like I said, patients are usually the best part of our job. Yeah. Honestly, about like, 80% <laughs> of people are yeah. the best part of our job. It makes our day better. That's why we went into it. Right. We went into this field to help people. We we, we love working with our people. We love it. We do. We love it. But here's the deal, everyone. About 20% of folks, it's probably not you guys. It's probably not the listeners, honestly. Yeah. But about 20% of people bring the heat in, yeah in sometimes unintentionally bring the heat and sometimes intentionally bring right the heat. and a lot of times I feel like they're not actually really ready for the therapeutic process they they come yes. in in crisis and like we yes. talked about before 
with certain crisis situations, you can't truly engage in those therapeutic models Mm -hmm. without hurting yourself further. Yes. So the first thing is, is sometimes we get clients that are not motivated, which Mm -hmm. is what you're saying. They're not ready to change. They're not ready to engage in treatment. Sometimes they're court mandated. And as a mental health provider, that's actually incredibly hard and draining. Think about it this way. Somebody you care about deeply is engaging in something that is very harmful. And you have to watch them week by week do this incredibly harmful thing Mm -hmm. to themselves and others. And you have options for solutions, but they do not want to do those solutions or are not capable for whatever reason. Right. It's heartbreaking. And the emotional toll that that takes on your mental health provider, it's not to make you feel guilty. It really isn't. It's more just we care and that's a part of our conditions. Yeah. And we're only able to do so much. And I think sometimes too, then those people... They're like, well, I'm seeing you. Why aren't things getting better? Well, you're not doing the thing because, yes. you, again, you don't have the capacity, you don't have the capability, right. or you don't have the motivation, whatever the purpose is. Yes. And But you're now getting – now they're directing their anger at you as the yes. provider because they aren't getting yes. better. Oh, my gosh. It is very, very challenging when a client will make it your fault that yeah. they aren't improving. That's a really unfair level of blame to place right. on somebody. And it happens a lot. Now, of course, I mean, you can blame somebody if they're doing something unethical. <laughs> You're right. And like, we've wild. talked about that. Go yeah. back to those <laughs> what red flag therapist episode. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, man. That does happen. But sure. When, but when it's like, simply there is just no effort on the other end it's really hard to watch and it's also really hard to get blamed so that's just and that is part of the therapeutic process we're ready for that but we're letting you know the context that we're working under so what else is going on in the places that i've worked the complexity of patients is incredibly high yeah particularly in the hospital systems and the community psych systems i mean there are Clients have multiple things going on. There's at one so many time. comorbidities. Yeah, yeah. they they come in for treatment for one thing, but they actually have it's like six. Six. Yeah, yeah I was going to say five or six at least. Yeah, going they will on. have a series of medical conditions like hypertension, diabetes, and chronic pain. Let's say. Yeah. And then also there will be an overlay of substance use issues, and then also maybe this person is suicidal or homicidal, and yeah. then also maybe they have a trauma condition. Yeah. And this is really typical for a hospital system i mean it's very typical because i think a lot of folks will not seek care right they wait till everything's on fire <laughs> like mm-hmm. instead of like noticing the first little spark yep people again mental health isn't something that's been educated about it's right. not been something that we've actually acknowledged for a long time right so until they are literally to the point of breaking in all capacities yes they're not seeking help Yes. And at that point, a lot of shit has broken. <laughs> right. And so as a therapist, you receive this client that's constantly on the edge. Yeah. And you are the only thing. I mean, the only Seriously. Thing. Sometimes we are the only person this person is actually interacting with. Yeah. Standing between them and maybe suicide or homicide. Yeah. And I want, you know, the audience to take that in. I'm not trying to be dramatic, but I want them to take that in to understand what that's really like as a person. Think about if you are the only person between about 60 people's life or death situation. Right. Really think about that. (laughs) What does that feel like? Right. Right. So it's like, we're not trying to complain. It's more just, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot to take in. So that's one thing. We also are really fighting a lot of systems level barriers because when clients come in, you know, it's like they might not have money right? or they might not have a house or they might be dealing with systemic racism or sexism or domestic violence. And so it's like, 
okay, what? <laughs> yeah. We need to get them all these resources, but there's so much red tape yes. and different hoops that these people have to jump through when they don't, again, they don't have the capacity to jump through these hoops. They don't have the physical or emotional stamina mm -hmm. to, to do all the things that they are required to do to gain the access mm -hmm. to the things that they need. Right. And generously, we have an hour a week with these people. Yeah. On generous. The, like yeah. on the high end, we have one hour a week with these people. Usually it's one hour every couple of weeks right. with these people. Right. And what you're telling me is the expectation is, okay, make sure this person does not commit homicide or suicide, cure their depression, cure their PTSD, make sure they get a house hey let's figure out their income make right. sure they're not abused right like let's teach them different ways to help with their physical pain as well and, and right and encourage them to eat healthier right and, right. and yeah. you're like yo like i don't i can do i'm basically just talking them down from interacting with the clerk who invalidated them right. for an hour i mean that it really is everything's always on fire. So again, just like take in what that condition is like for a mental health provider and what things you would need to really be successful in a system like that. I can tell you we need a lot more than what we're getting. <laughs> right. And a lot less people that we're working with, a lot more time with those people. Absolutely. So speaking of that, we provide about eight 60 to 90 minute sessions a day. Yeah. I mean, y'all. Where are we supposed to write our notes? That's the issue for, oh my God. I, I literally stop a session plan? and I don't even have time to pee. No. Like no, you, no, 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 you no. don't have time to pee between. You're, you don't pee. You're, you're either going to get in this, dropping somebody off and grabbing them. Or if it's virtual, you're clicking off and clicking on because you don't mm -hmm. want to be that person that's super late. Mm -hmm. And the, a lot of people have already had ne negative experiences right. with medical or mental health providers. So you want to be reliable, on time, yes. consistent, clear. But where are you going to treatment plan? When are you going to write a note? Right. When are you going to pee or eat a sandwich? Right. I mean, really. Like, really, you get about a half hour a day right. to eat your food and pee and do anything else you need for, plus your notes. Right. Like, and is what? that what you want out of a mental health provider, right? Like if you're a patient, wouldn't you want a provider that is well taken care of, thoughtful, able to research Yeah, that has case? a lot of time to prep for your mm -hmm. sessions. I have to do extra time. And I've lessened myself a lot on that because yes. I always used to work a lot harder than my clients. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I do a fair amount of prep on my people and I end up – that ends up consuming a ton of time. Well, you're always – outside of your session time. Oh, you're yeah. Always I'm outside. always overworking. Yeah. You're, I mean, I, you're always outside of hours doing extra stuff. Always. Yeah. Always, always, always. It's like the teachers you hear buying crayons for their students. Right. I mean, and we're working on our family time. Time yes. we're supposed to be spending with our families to make sure that we're not, because I mean, it's really like, we both care about our patients, but on a very serious level, we want to make sure they don't harm themselves or somebody else too. Right. So it feels very, uh, not like you have a choice. Honestly. Yeah, yeah. It feels very pressured and scary. Like if you don't do this, something really horrible is going to happen. Right. Which is, if I'm being honest, kind of traumatizing. And again, when they come in, so you prepare like, okay, so this is what we need to work on. Then they come in with a whole different ball of wax that's on fire and yes. you're like, oh shit, let me juggle this ball of wax. And then you don't yes. even get to the thing you prepared half the yes. time. <laughs> it's like, shit. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, you know, and think about this. This is another thing to kind of think about. We we are trained for this. Yes. Sort of. Okay. But what's, what happens is people come in and they might describe a graphic abuse history or trauma, tell us about suicide or homicide plans, tell us they cannot leave their homes or cannot quit a substance. 
And I will say we love our jobs, we're content with our jobs, but most of us were never trained on how to handle this information and not take it in without being traumatized. Right. We're I, not, we were not taught how to leave work at work. No, 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 no. That wasn't part of grad school. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about vicarious trauma and what that is. We didn't talk about how to reduce vicarious trauma. We didn't talk about, I mean, we're essentially under similar conditions as like, let's say a special victims unit investigator, mm-hmm. but we're not treated the same way. We don't have similar kind of outlets. There's nobody talking to us about what happened. There's nobody. Yeah asking us if we're okay and frankly we're paid a lot less so it's just like what is going on right and then our license make us in some ways responsible for these cases which we should there should be accountability for sure yeah but it's something to kind of consider to a degree at least i mean there's only so much that we can do to safety plan i mean a person's still going to make the choices they make right of course and i mean so that gives you context of like you know maybe a physician spends 15 minutes with somebody but we might spend 90 minutes and we really take on a lot of that information their lives it really matters like we we learn a lot about these people yeah we really connect and so what happens um affects us maybe a little bit more than the average bear right well and again because of our role in what we do we've talked about this before, we have to get into that empathy role where we are kind of trying to step into your shoes. So not only are we hearing your story, we're trying to understand and feel what it would feel like to be in your story. So we can help you process it. Mm -hmm. And so that's putting our, like we're literally putting our emotions like in your shoes. Yeah. we. we This is not a sympathy, right? We're not looking down. This is not a sympathy, but this is an empathy where we are feeling it. Right. We And we use that emotional interaction to help guide our care plans and to help kind of understand what coping skills might be useful for you right and so we're basically kind of like diving into each person's dark well as deeply as we can go we're holding our breath for as long as possible and we're digging up as much as we can in an hour and that's hard to do with one person let alone eight in a day without a break i mean this is crazy folks like really consider what i am telling you that is bananas so if you're you know if you've sought care and you're like wow like these people are seeming rushed and harried and nuts and blah 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 some level of that is like some people should not be mental health providers (laughs) right right like let's be honest there are some oh there's a good there's a good chunk out there that are terrible yeah and are freaking bananas right like i've been on the other side of that too like oh my gosh these people are bananas but some of it is truly the working conditions. Yeah. Like, this is not sustainable. I mean, I would say this applies to a lot of healthcare providers in our country. Definitely. Yeah, not just mental health. Not sure. just mental health, but we can speak on the mental health provider crisis. I think it's also important to know that most folks who go to therapy really should see somebody who has some information about trauma-informed care. Yeah. It really should be routine. It really should be standard. But the reality is that requires special training, right? We need additional training and observation and interaction with other providers. We need to read. We need to discuss with other providers. Mm -hmm. We need to be getting support. We need to be getting continuing education classes. Right. And we don't get that. No, I'm so thankful. Like as much as the prison was uh, had its, you know, pretty dark spots, I'm so thankful that I got to be a group therapist with other skilled. Like when I went in there, some of the therapists that had been there had been there for like 10 to 15 years, which eventually shit changed and they got burnt out and left mm. around the time that I decided I needed to start leaving too. Mm-hmm. But 
getting to learn from them as a greenhorn was huge. Like I learned so many different skills and techniques and just like ways to process and like express different therapeutic techniques to clients Mm -hmm. by doing a group therapy with these other providers. Oh, you watch them. The strongest thing is to watch a seasoned clinician model interactions in a healthy, positive way. Yeah. And to help have them give you feedback. But yes. Okay. If you're seeing eight clients a day, all of them are trauma sessions. You have no trauma training. Where are you going to meet with somebody? Right. When are you going to do And by the time that education? you are able to do that, you're so burnt out. You don't want to engage. Like I remember oh, you need supervision. Oh, you need to on the ground. <laughs> yeah. I remember supervision after like for the – because there wasn't somebody who had the social work degree in the prison. I had to go pay for supervision outside of oh, that yeah. by a different person. And so I would just come with whatever – things that I had to process and work through. But I was so burnt out by that time. Like sometimes it'd be like, nope, things are good. We're good. I don't got anything to discuss. Do you yeah. have anything for me? <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Man. I could really see that. I kind of, you know, I've forgotten about, we should, we could probably do a whole section. We should probably add a section on this about grad school and supervision and training that we get. Because let me just tell you, there's the, there are some positive experiences, but yeah. there's also, it can be quite the hellscape. In finding somebody that's actually good at training you and getting your own self-care needs met through training. It's a psychologist, social worker, psychiatrist. We're social creatures. We need to be with one another in order to learn better. Yeah. But, you know, that's a double-edged sword, too. That's an even Right, because you're already burnt. And they're probably burnt out from their own shit, too. And they don't want to check in. I mean, it depends. It all depends on who you're working with, how your situation is. But it's... The struggle is real. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so we're not talking about academics here. We're talking about like the clinical, the yeah. clinical side. So, and it would also be, you know, ideal to have some evidence-informed training for each part of the job. So like, yeah. let's say that I was working with all clients who had uh, insomnia. That was a thing that actually happened. They're, they didn't provide me on-the-job training in no. cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. No. They just I say, ha- here's your caseload and figure out how to do this type of treatment. Absolutely. Yeah. Really, really what the onboarding process is in most places is this. Here is where to find your testing supplies. Here is what the – generously, here is what the electronic health record looks like. And here is your email. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Again, I'm actually really thankful for the prison. We had a a month long training to just understand the prison system. That's so good. The charting, how to fucking take down people, get sprayed in the face. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is so sad. You guys, Michaela's expressing gratitude for being sprayed in the face for a training (laughs) that sprayed her with pepper spray, (laughs) like bare level pepper spray, and showed her combat skills. Like. Yeah. This is the gratitude we experience as mental health providers. I'm sorry, what? But they also would give us actual trainings for the groups that we wanted to run. That's great. So that was That's another level that was great too. That, that again, every other facility, when they say, I want you to do this treatment, they haven't taught me shit. Oh, yeah. They just say, figure it out. And I have to hunt down people to help me figure it out. Mm-hmm. And now like... You think about it this way, right? This is this is what I would say about the patients because you're alluding to this. The depth and the breadth of the issues that we are expected to treat is absolutely staggering. That would be like if a physician were asked to be both the primary care provider and the neurosurgeon. Yeah. I mean, and the cardiologist. And the cardiologist. (laughs) Right. We do the intake assessments, but we also do a lot of the case. So we'll be like, okay. 
what's going on here? We're in charge of the diagnosing. Like, okay, what's going on here? Let's just figure this out. Then we're in charge of the treatment planning, which would just be a PCP, right? That would be your primary care provider. They would diagnose. And, and then they'd refer plan. you to the people. And they'd get you to the next level of people. Yeah. Not so for us, Hancho. We, <laughs> we will diagnose you. And then guess what? We have to retain you because there's nowhere to send you. That's us. Yeah. We're the person. We're yeah. it. So then we come up with a treatment plan. Then we're the one that facilitates the treatment plan. Then we're also the crisis management for right. the most part. Yes. Right. 100%. So you're trying to deal with these eight people a day, plus you're going to get bombarded, at least periodically, oh, yeah. with a random crisis that you have to figure out now. Right now. Right now. Because this person is not well or not safe. And that's understandable on their end, right? They need yeah. somebody to talk to. But then it's like on our end. So then we're the emergency department too. Yeah. We're, and also a lot of us end up being the case manager as well. Right. So we're also in charge of the housing. Right. Yeah. We need to get them to their right resources. Uh-huh. We're yeah. also in charge of the medical appointments, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing is, is like we are not trained. So we are trained with like generalist issues, right? A lot of yeah. us will understand like mood disorders. Yeah. They help us understand the diagnoses and what kinds of treatment go with those diagnoses, but how to actually apply that and how to juggle Again, the the comorbidities of issues and the amount of different tasks that you're supposed to be juggling and doing. Right. It's just not possible. Like, think about it this way. I mean, you can be a jack of all trades, but you're going to be a master of none, which means that you're then going to leave clients wanting. Yeah. Like, I would say the large majority of people, I would describe myself as a specialist in trauma care. And I would also say I don't have a flipping clue about – like long-term management of psychosis, for example. I mean, sure. I, I've got, I could give you some bare bones. I yeah. could keep somebody safe. I sure. could, you Same. know, I could give like a medium level of care. But should somebody with that be with me for long-term? No. Will somebody with that be with me long-term in yep. a hospital system? Yes. And then it's my job in between all of those things to figure out what the F and F do we do in this situation? Right. Right. And that's just not reasonable. No, no. Also, I would kind of like to add out there, and Michaela has alluded to this as well, that this is not all clients. This is not most of clients, but some clients are engaging in criminal behavior. Yeah. So sometimes, frankly, it feels very, very, very unsafe to do our jobs. Yeah. I have, I mean, how many times in the last, like, let's say when you were working, how many times in the last month had you felt unsafe? I would say once a week at least. For I mean, me. at the last setting, for sure, once a week. When I was doing the homeless setting, every, every day. day. Every, every day. day. Every that day. was terrifying. I mean, I felt so much safer in the prison system because yeah. I had the pepper spray. I had a walkie-talkie that I could push and somebody be there in seconds. Yep. I I was trained on how to manage those things. Yeah. In the homeless setting, I'm, I'm going into their home yeah. Yeah. that we've set them up with. They are most likely on drugs at the moment and high. Yeah. That happened. <laughs> they they are very unstable in every way possible. And I'm walking into the lion's den and yeah. I'm not allowed to bring pepper spray. No. Nope. I'm not allowed to do nope. takedown moves. No, no, no. I'm not allowed to defend myself. I literally asked. Right. <laughs> I mean, half the time, honestly, folks didn't even know where I was. So I would do in-home care assessments. Right. People didn't, nobody could even tell me if I went back to the hospital that day and was like, 
where was I today? I don't think anybody could have located me. Right. Like, if my dead body showed up yeah. in a river, yep. I don't think people could have tracked me down. Yeah. I'm not kidding. I legit came across dead bodies during that rota- like when I, during yeah. that time. Listen <laughs> to what we're people. Michaela saw a dead fucking body. I had blood on my car. Yeah. <laughs> blood on her car. What is happening? I saw a person who I don't know if they were dead or not. Probably. I mean, like, really, I think they really probably were. Because, I mean, a lot of times, you know, when you go into these situations, somebody is, like, really, really uncared for um, or they might be on a substance and you can't tell if they're breathing or not. But then you can't, like, go over there because it's unsafe. It's a whole thing. And so then you call, like, reinforcements. Well, and you're not on what happens. Most of these things, again, we're going to these places by ourselves. All these things are, like, one-on-one most, Mm -hmm. like, 90% of the time. When almost all these situations need to have at least two people. Yep. Like think about like domestic violence type. I think of the social workers who go out for the home-based care for that kind of stuff all the time. Like they need to have a, an officer with them at all times. This is oh, not we okay. Don't. We But never, we don't. We never. I have never once had actual protection in any of these unsafe situations. Not once. I've been in situations with people who have been convicted homicide or sex offender types and no one's been in there i mean i have been followed to my car i Mm -hmm. have been followed in my car i have had people tell me the make and model of my car yeah when i have come back to work i I mean like anything not only do we go into people's homes i mean i saw (laughs) we could just keep going but let's i want to kind of give an overview is it's very common for folks when we are just in our office to bring in weapons they can oh yes i mean like I had a guy. <laughs> I had a guy with a cane sword. I was going to say, I had a cane sword guy too. Yeah, yeah. Like they will take off like the head, the skull. It looks like a skull and then they'll unscrew it from and the cane. And then there's a giant ass sword. And there's just a sword in there. Yeah. Okay. Um, I had a person show me their brass knuckles that they had in their pocket. I had a person lay their gun on the table. I mean, I've had people lay their guns on the table like a lot, a lot. Yeah. Not even as a threatening gesture all the time, but as just like, I don't want to sit on this. Uh, I mean, but yeah. also sometimes it's their threatening gesture. Uh, we've had, I've had people, I've just walked into the hospital that I was working in and one of my patients happened to be there brandishing a knife. Yeah. I have walked into a hospital, uh, I've had a code orange where you have to respond as a mental health provider to a de-escalation situation where somebody was, I think I referenced this, talking to angels and demons mm. because they were on meth. Yeah. Um, and again, this is not like all of our clients, but even if this is 10% of our clients, which usually it's honestly 20%. Yeah, I was going to say, in most of these settings, it's 20. I mean, I guess- Might be 30. (laughs) Yeah, I think in like, you know, the private practice setting, you might, it's a little, it's 10% might be more realistic. Yeah, but even if it's only 10%, (laughs) like think about that. Even if this is only 10%, that's a trauma, right? Like if anybody else walked into a situation where somebody was brandishing a knife yep. and about to attack them, that would be considered a trauma. But for us, it's just our job. Right. We are. What? We were called in to de-escalate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you think that we don't take that home and you think that we don't care about that and oh, yeah. wonder about that. We do. Yeah. It matters to us. Yeah. One time I got a... <laughs> One time I got a referral and the referral question was, I'm going to kill my social worker. That was the referral question. Nice. It's like, I can't, I'm, I can't make this up. No. We have people who threaten mass shootings. Yep. We have people who leave drunk and angry voicemails. And 
I mean, this is and who are like just gross or inappropriate. And, oh yeah. Oh I mean, yeah. who make sexual violence threats yeah. or say really inappropriate yeah. things. Uh-huh. I mean, there was a time that I pretty much was assaulted. Mm-hmm. And that day I came home and just like cried in my shower. Like I literally felt like I had just been violated. Mm-hmm. And it <sighs> I cannot count the amount of times that I've been flashed or masturbated in front of mm-hmm. or I mean you guys, you guys. And I was like almost not going to be able to escape this person's home. Like they had a hold of my arm. Oh yeah. And I had to like run out of there and like basically push this person down. Yes. Yes, this is this is not <laughs> Michaela's story. Unfortunately, is not uncommon. No, either. Like this is a thing that happens to most of us. Like most of us as mental health providers have had a story, at least like unexperienced, if not multiple. Yeah, I mean, I I remember one time I was in somebody's house, and um, this is not a well. I've definitely had them say like weird sexual things and then masturbate, which sure. is a form of assault and gross. Yeah. But I've also, I mean, I was in somebody's house. It started to flood and I saw like literally a sewer rat float by <laughs> on. Oh, the amount of cockroaches and bed bugs that I have came across. Yeah. Well, I mean, like really think about that. If you go or, you know, I have friends who worked with like a kind of a thing called. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was a property management thing that yep. was done by the city that would go to homes of people who are hoarders. Ooh. And I have friends who had like fungal infections in their ears from walking into these houses even for oh my God. five, ten minutes, like antibiotic and antifungal resistant infections that would happen after entering these homes. homes. Who do you think does these jobs? It's us yeah. like what do you think is happening yeah. out there so i just kind of i say all this to say like and i think we probably should make this a two-part segment okay it is not to complain it is not to say oh woe is me but eventually what we're going to do is offer some kind of practical ideas for hey listen we want to be mental health workers we care about people but right and we love we, we love the love work. It. We, we love got it. into this with a passion. We got into this with an interest. And we genuinely want to help the people who want to be helped. But there needs to be some safety measures. Yes. There needs to be some anti-burnout protection. There needs to be more training. There needs to be just more staffing. Yeah. Like, like oh, we can go into. Oh, my God. We're going to hit that one next. Staffing is insane. We're going to. Yeah. Please. We're going to hit that one hard. So we'll just. We'll, we'll suffice to say this information today. Like that there are some. These these are the patient variables. There are more patient variables we'll talk about next time. We'll talk a little bit about like hospital safety measures that we don't really have mm-hmm. in place. We'll start there. And then we'll talk a little bit about the administrative conditions for mental uh, health workers. Yeah. Because that one's like really our – we could rage for days on that yeah. one. Yeah. Honestly, because the, the patients are more understandable to me, right? Right, yeah. Like, I'm – I you knew, accept that? Yeah, I knew I was going to be dealing with a hot mess when the patient walks in. Yeah. I did not expect to be dealing with a hot mess from my admin. own staff yes. people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I'll even say it this much. Even when you're in training in grad school, they really don't prepare you for the level of complexity of the patient. So even though we like consent in some way to this right and they talk a little about comorbidity but they say like oh they might have these two things yeah and and again a lot of your treatment training is if they have this diagnosis do this treatment like this one diagnosis Uh i had a client once say to me he was like i hate it when people say that you like 
you know, he was a veteran. He had he had enlisted willingly, but he said, like, I hate it when people say you signed up for this because, like, how can somebody really be prepared right. for, like, the realities of a combat situation? Because oh, there no is, kidding. like, more to it than what you're actually consenting to. Of like, course. you don't actually have all the information available. And it's really similar for mental health work. It's, like, there are things that we consent to and we know what's going yeah. on, but we did not consent to the unsafe and unhealthy work conditions. Right. We weren't prepared for police-level of <laughs> yeah yeah no right right like yeah we, yeah we that was not part of the training or the information session right that was not in the informational packet yes <laughs> not at all that was glossed over and thrown in the bin yeah and then you're kind of made to feel like you're the silly one if you're struggling with it like right. you're made to feel weak. you're gaslit mm, yeah oh yeah and we'll go into that too so this is part one of what apparently is going to be yet another mini series sorry guys we just like getting in depth i yeah. mean and I think for the mental health workers and the patients out there, it's both like, oh, is this really what's happening? Right. Because then it can kind of force movement forward into understanding what's behind the veil because it's such a private industry. It has to be, right? Right. We have to keep people's secrets private. Really good that we do that. But then I think we don't actually talk about what it's really like. Right. And I think a lot of us are really tough and we don't want to complain. Right. But I think more me doing my homework, I'm like, no, this was trauma. Like, and I'm not going to pretend that it wasn't trauma. And then acting like it isn't just kind of sets our field further and further back. Right. It's further invalidating for what you're experiencing. Yeah, exactly. So that's part one. But based on that, what are we even going to do for outside of practice homework? (laughs) Because that is wild, (laughs) what we just said. What are we going to try? Well, I'm also detoxing from just burnout, you know, now that I'm on maternity Mm -hmm. leave. Mm -hmm. I am – I was – I was. I'm still pretty – extremely burnt out and, you know, have the vicarious trauma bullshit happening mm-hmm. too that I'm kind of debugging from mm-hmm. myself. You start to get like these flashbacks like yeah. in the middle of the day and you're like, oh shit, okay. Right. <laughs> but now I feel overwhelmed and undereducated on what I'm doing with parenting. <laughs> <laughs> so honestly, like this is a silly homework perhaps, but I don't think it is. I think I just need to give myself a good cry session like, yes. to release. Oh, I love that. Like I want to, maybe maybe it'll be in the shower so it can be like a dual mm-hmm. release, wash away situation. Love I don't know. It. But I, I honestly think I just need a good cry session because I'm, I'm detoxing from burnout and I'm feeling overwhelmed and juggling new things that I don't fully understand which mm-hmm. again that's i, yeah, I love it life. yeah I, again it's not that we don't love the different things we're doing but there's a lot of complexity to them mm-hmm. so let cry. the rain fall down and wash <laughs> my tears what is that who's that person is lizzie mcguire oh oh, oh my, my god that is yeah i was like why did i know that song <laughs> yeah buddy yeah buddy real about, throwback that is a real throwback yeah. what is your homework gonna be i'm gonna basically do trauma narratives for my work history like oh, cool i've had to be writing down like when right. i have a little flashback of a rat floating by on like a log in a patient's house and then them like maybe gonna drown me like writing down that narrative of the thing that happened and how I felt and how I reacted and what my emotional response was right the do not forget file or whatever yeah Yeah. the in case you forget file because it's like now I'm emotionally processing years and years and years and years of working as a mental health provider 
and I need to categorize it. And the only way my mind will categorize it if I write it down and do these trauma narratives. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but y'all, that's what I got to do. No, it worked. I mean, it's it's a therapeutic process and a way to work through things for a reason. Absolutely. Are you doing it in a way that you're just being fully authentic about it? Are you doing it in a way that you're like the hero and kind of like storifying it or? Mm, I'm just writing like what happened got it like i'm literally just writing like this happened this was all happening right like you're like validating the experience and how it was traumatizing by writing it down got it got it got it yes i'm like okay this was crazy say this out loud to yourself right and another person said this to you what would you feel what would you think what would you react how what would you feel empathy for them and then trying to turn that towards myself yeah in regards to what happened because and i i would imagine medical doctors have this too a lot like you know you lose patients i've lost patients like you Mm -hmm. think about the things that have happened where you love somebody and you lose them or whatever and then it's like you just move on yeah like i remember you kind of have to turn it off so you can be there for the next Mm -hmm. next one exactly and i would imagine like medical providers who retire have to do something like this or people who leave the police force probably have to do something like this like so i would imagine it's just like kind of par for the course but it's your own processing of what you have to do because it's you know it's a lifestyle it's really something else so Mm -hmm. that's what i'm going to try for outside of session practice i dig it and then next week we'll definitely do the part two of this cool and i know this hasn't been as funny but i did have a funny joke Ooh, i dig (laughs) it okay okay so how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb this is a different one one. but they have to want to change (laughs) this is a different one damn it okay Okay. yeah yeah no that's normally the answer but i added one, but 15 to write a report about surviving the darkness. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, okay, hit me. Why was the equal sign so humble? Mm, I don't know. Because he wasn't greater than or less than anyone else. Oh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> little math joke there. <laughs> Bringing you some English and some math today. Oh, <laughs> look at that. My brain likes these. Well, thank you so much for tuning in, guys. We yeah. so love that you are a part of our experience. And keep writing to us. We love to hear from you. We love hearing from you guys, genuinely. Yes. Thank you for all of your life minutes. And we will talk to you next week. Yeah, talk to you next week. Okay, bye. Bye.